Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how God started again with Noah and how God took time to remind Noah of the wickedness of man's heart. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's some highlights from yesterday's message. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God gave to all flesh one way of salvation, which was the ark. Building the altar was Noah's first priority when he emerged from the ark. And we saw how he was known as a builder of two things. Noah built the ark, Noah built the altar. Noah built the ark, and Noah, also known for building the altar where where he worshipped God. He had that priority. Same for us. Our priority is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, spend time with him. Now here's Tom Cantor as we continue our expository study of the life of Noah and the book of Genesis every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. If I say to you this word, nichoach, what does it sound like to you? What other word does it sound like to you? Let me just give you a hint <laughs> and tell you that in Hebrew the word Noah is not, is not Noah, it's noach, noach. And so this is a nichoach, okay? You got it. <laughs> it sounds like Noah, right? It sounds like, okay, maybe it doesn't to you. What can, we, what can we do? All right, so anyway, so the meaning of Noah's name is tied up in this meaning of the word sweet here. Anybody remember what Noah's father, Noah's dad, why he named him Noah? No? Yeah, he's going to give rest. He's going to give comfort. Naham, comfort. He's going to give rest. He's going to give comfort. So when everyone gets off the ark, they turn to Noah and they said, your dad was right. They said, said, you really did give us rest. You did give us comfort. You gave us peace, you know. So you did that. In other words, when we got on the ark, we didn't have any rest, comfort, or peace. It was very, very bad. And now we get off the ark and look, you did it. Okay. So the truth that's behind this, and if you turn to this, keep your place. That's why you have ten fingers, so you can keep ten places. So turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 and verse 11. Isaiah 53, 11. Very important word there. It said, well, you look at Isaiah 53, 10, and you, you can see a little bit more. You look at Isaiah 53, 9, you see a little bit more. You look at the whole chapter, you see everything. Anyway, Isaiah 53, 9 describes to us the type of offering that the Lord Jesus Christ was. Because he had done no violence and neither was there any deceit in his mouth, that means he was an offering without blemish. He was perfect. He was sinless. And now we get in verse 10, and it says that the Lord made the offering of him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He put him to grief. And then in the middle of verse 10, we have, what should we do? Therefore, you make, personally, individually, his soul your offering for sin. But then it says in verse 11, that when the Father, when God the Father saw the travail of his soul, here's here's an interesting word, he said he was satisfied. He was satisfied. And he says, by his knowledge he'll justify many. That word satisfied in Isaiah 53, 11, is the key to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he was satisfied, that means it was enough. It was enough, and God was satisfied that all his requirements for justice have been met. It was enough, and he was satisfied that all of man's debt for sin had been paid. 
So that verse in Isaiah 53, 11 means that God the Father saw the offering of God the Son, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was satisfied so that the great war between sinful man and God, it could be over. It was over. And there was peace and there was rest. And because God was satisfied, it was enough. That's why it says in Colossians 1.20 that having made peace through the blood of his cross, he made this rest, this comfort. It's the meaning of the word, the sweet part. is the rest and the comfort that came through the blood of his cross because it was the only offering that God was satisfied with. And there's only one offering that smells sweet and satisfying and peacemaking, comfort bringing, rest giving. That's all tied up in that word that sounds like Noah's name. And it's all there. And it's the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why God says to us, to everybody in Isaiah 53.10, because God's satisfied, God says, I have some advice for you. And my advice, God says, is you better make his soul your offering for sin. That's what you have to do. And he says to all people, everywhere, everywhere, he says, make the soul of the Lord Jesus Christ your offering for sin. Make him your savior. Take him as your savior because God says, for his and his alone sacrifice, I smell sweet savor. I smell a savor that brings the peace. I smell savor that brings comfort and rest. So then when that happens, then a general scripture becomes a personal reality, and that's the scripture of Romans 5.1. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When the individual take, makes his soul an offering for sin, that becomes a personal reality. Okay. So that's why the Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as a sweet savor in 2 Corinthians 2.15, a sweet savor of Christ. And then you may like to turn to Ephesians 5.2. It's very interesting in this context. Ephesians 5.2 says this. Ephesians 5.2. So another finger. You can hold this place. Okay. Christ also hath loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So, when God smells the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ, when God smelled the offering which prefigured the Lord Jesus Christ, that Noah was making, he's got sweet-smelling, rest-giving, peace-giving, so forth, comfort, satisfied enough, has a smell, and then God responds in his heart, and it says in Genesis 8. His response in his heart with a promise. And the promise is he's not going to curse in the same way that he did before. He says he's not going to do that. So, you know, we can ask the question, what does God do when he smells Christ who loved us, gave himself for us for an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor? What does he do when he smells the sweet-smelling savor of the offering of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross? He does the same thing that he did when he smelled with Noah. He makes a promise he's not going to curse Again, in the same way, a person takes the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior, makes a soul an offering for sin, God responds and says, I will not curse that person by sending him into hell, because by faith he's taken my son as his offering for sin. I won't curse him. And that's why he makes, him, makes that invitation. 
to do that. Same invitation in Isaiah 72, 5. Let him take hold of my strength, God says, that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. So it says in Isaiah 27, 5. So the pattern that we look at, we stand back, we look at Isaiah 8, and we identify a pattern, a very important pattern. Number one, God judges the earth. Right after, right on the heels of that judgment, number two, Noah makes offering, and God smells a sweet-smelling offering. And right after he smells that sweet-smelling savor, God promises that he will not curse in the same way anymore. That's a dramatic scene when you think about it. I mean, all living things have been destroyed. Eight people representing all humanity survive. They come off the judgment. The door of the ark opens up. And what is God going to do? Is he just going to sit there and say, well, I'm not going to do anything. I just want just to let this sit into you, let it really take effect in you. I mean, let's just be a warning to you, Noah and family. Don't step out of line. That's not what he does. Right after judgment, after he smells the sweet, after he has a basis, the sweet, sweet smelling savor, he, he makes a promise he's not going to judge. He's not going to curse anymore. What does that show? It shows that God is anxious to forgive. God wants to forgive. It shows that God is anxious to save. God wants to save from judgment. It shows that all God needs is a basis for the forgiving and the saving from the judgment, which is the sweet, that's the word sweet, the sweet-smelling offering. That's the offering that's sweet-smelling. He's anxious to forgive. He's anxious to save individuals from hell. And all he needs is a basis for that individual, which is to make his soul your offerings for sin, take the sweet-smelling offering of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior. And that immediate smelling of the sweet savor and that immediate promising to not curse anymore as he had. It shows that God is anxious not to curse anyone anymore. It shows that God has a readiness to not curse. That we have to shows us, Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not willing. He is ready. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It shows us in 1 Timothy 2.4 that his heart, his heart of hearts, is he wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he's provided for all men to be saved. He's provided. He provided it. That's what's amazing about Isaiah 53, is that 10, is that he's the one who made the offering. So he's provided this sweet-smelling offering of his son in whom he's well-pleased so that no one can perish. He doesn't want anyone to go to hell. God is not predetermined or preordained that anyone should go to hell. He's made every person, and this gets emphasized as we've seen in Genesis 8, he's made every person in the image of God which means every person, no matter how sinful they are, they still maintain the ability to make a personal decision to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Even a thief on a cross who was made in the image of God and still retained the image of God had the ability to make a decision and call on the Lord to be saved. And he did call. And he did save. God did save him. And God has promised that he'll save anyone who calls on him. And since he knows who is going to make that decision, because you can see down the future, the tunnel of time, he knows who's going to call on him, so he has elected the callers to be saved. But God does not make that decision 
for anyone to call. He does not make the decision to call for anyone. Why? Because he's made them in the image of God and that's their decision. I mean, when you look at the revelation of God in Genesis, what do we find in the revelation of God? God making decisions. You know, in the beginning, God decided. It doesn't say that, but it's there. In the beginning, God decided to make the heavens and the earth and God made the heavens and the earth. And then he decided that there should be light. And so they made light. And they decided that there should be the earth. I mean, the gathering of the waters. And there was gathering so all these, everything that God did in Genesis 1 and 2 in the creation, it was preceded by his decision to do it. And that's the image, that's God. God decides and then God acts. And so when he makes man in his image, he makes him with the ability to decide on his own and then act. See, that's the image of God. The animals don't have that. And that's what's special. And then so everybody has the ability on their own to make the decision. And God's anxious about it, and he wants everyone to make that decision to call on God, and he's anxious to save everybody. But there's got to be a basis. There has to be a basis to save, which is the sweet part, the, the peacemaking offering, acceptable offering, which is being obedient to God and taking the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. Now, the fact that right after the flood, right after this judgment, God is promising in his heart to not curse in the same way. It just shows how anxious God is that no one ends up in hell. He doesn't want that. Now, verse 21, the next thing that God says in verse 21, he puts this this clause, I don't know what you want to call it, this parenthetical statement, whatever. It just says, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from from his youth. Now, Here we see God saying how deep the peace is that he makes with man. Because even with the view, even with this in view that I know. In other words, what's God doing? He's zeroing in on this issue of the hereditary sinfulness of man. He says, I know that man is a sinner from his birth. I know that man has this hereditary sinful nature, and I've got it straight in my sight. I've zeroed in on it, and even with zeroing in on it, I want to make peace. I want to make peace with man. What does it show? It shows God's compassion. It's not judgment that he's after of man, but it's compassion even when he sees this hereditary sinfulness. That's how profound the peace is that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ brings. It's through compassion of God. And again, it goes back to the Second Peter 3, 9, with him not willing that any should perish and all men should be saved. Now, for God to bring up at this time the inherent sinful nature of man, that's a real downer. I mean, that's, that's really throwing water on a parade. I mean, you know, here in Noah, you know, he's just gotten off the ark. He steps foot out there. He's a new earth. Everything looks so great. It's all fresh. It's all new. It's all pure. There's no sin. There's no murder. There's all the violence. Everything's gone. All the evil seems gone. The earth looks so good and pure. And Noah's opening the door of the ark and taking a deep breath. You know, you picture it. He goes, oh, man, this is a wonderful place kind of like when we first moved into Lakeside, but not quite. <laughs> I looked at that and said, this is a wonderful place. And Pastor Jim says, it's going to absorb work. <laughs> that was a prophecy. Anyway, so Noah, it was, the earth absorbed work for Noah too. But it was a wonderful place. And Noah might have said, it's my home forever. This is great. He gets off the ark he collects all the clean animals, makes the offering to God. God smells the sweet savor, makes the wonderful promises. And Noah thinks to himself, life is good. Life is very good. God's happy with me. 
The earth is new. Everything's wonderful. What's not to like? And so, what does God say? The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now, with such a wonderful beginning and such a wonderful place, why bring this up now? I mean, why bring up sin and the hereditary part of sin? And if, I mean, why at this time? Noah thinks this a bit. He thinks about God. He says, you know, God just said, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And he thinks to himself, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Who could God be referring to? Let's see. Did he say that the imagination of man's heart was evil from his youth? Was he referring to all those dead people that aren't here and now? But he didn't. He used the present tense. The imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. And so Noah, being the very intelligent person that he was, came to the conclusion, he's talking about me. He's talking about my family. I mean, who else is there? I mean, he didn't, and God didn't say, some men's heart are evil from their youth. He said, he makes this categorical statement, God does. He said, every man, all men, man's heart is a category, is evil from his youth. There's only eight people on the earth at this time, and there's no one in his family, so no, 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 he's got to be talking about me. I mean, there was Noah. He was such a good Christian. <laughs> he had offered the right sacrifices. Everything smelled good. And, and then God tells him that the imagination of his heart, evil from his youth. Just such a welcome. All right, now, so why did God do that? We have to get to the question. Why did God, at such a wonderful uh, time when Noah's, you know, the, why did he bring this up? You know, well, obviously, God loves Noah so much that he's carefully cautioning Noah. He's saying to Noah, Noah, I'm counseling you. You have to beware of sin that lies in your heart. Noah, don't, don't let this wonderful feeling that you have now of coming out on the earth sedate your guard. Sedate your guard. Like Paul said in, in Romans 7, 23-25, Paul was, his guard was not sedated when he said, I see another law in my members warring. There's a warfare going on against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity. There was a struggle going on to the law of sin, which is in my members. It was internal. And then when he looks at all that, Paul looks at that and he says, this is a horrible man that I am. Oh, wretched man that I am. And then he cries out for help. Who shall deliver me from this body of this death? And then he answers it. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God was in love warning Noah by essentially saying to Noah, I didn't save you from those sinners who died, who who I judged, because you're not sinful. He was saying that. Noah, you have the same sinful nature as those ones who were judged. So be careful, Noah. Be careful. And God finishes verse 21 by repeating again. He says, but neither will I smite anymore. Every living thing as I have done. And so those were a great comfort to Noah that, and a great comfort to us because God is saying that the sacrifice that he smelled was enough that even though we do have the same sinful nature, that God reaffirms his promise to not curse as he did before. Tom, today you talked about how God is anxious to forgive and to save. And you mentioned 2 Peter 3.9 and 1 Timothy 2.4, which are often quoted to show how God is anxious to forgive and save. Now, a common misunderstanding is that God was a God of wrath in the Old Testament, 
and then God changed and became a God of love in the New Testament. So is there an Old Testament passage that shows that God is anxious to forgive and save? Yes, you know, that's, I like the way you put that. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he was not a different person in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. And in fact, there's a passage that shows very much he's anxious to forgive. He's anxious to save. It's by the Jewish prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, which is, which is just two chapters over from the great Isaiah 53, which speaks of about the purpose of the crucifixion of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so his work is done in Isaiah 53. And now we come to Isaiah 55, and it's the application of the work from Isaiah 53. And so it says, and it starts off in Isaiah 55, 6 through 9, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let's stop for a moment here. It says here that we should seek the Lord while he may be found. We should call upon him while he is near. Do you know what a definition of hell is? A definition of hell is where God may not be found. It's a place where God is not near. That's terrible. That's horrible. No one, no one, no one should ever take for granted should ever just look lightly upon the fact that God may now be found in his life. God is near now in his life, in this life. It's the short period of time that we call life on earth. It's the short period of time that we have. It's the window of opportunity when God may be found. It's the opportunity when God is near, when we can call upon him and be heard. And what is the call he wants to hear? He wants to hear whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He wants to hear the call, Lord, save me, a a lost sinner. I need the Lord Jesus Christ as my sacrifice. I need him as my blood sacrifice. I need him to save me from my sins. That's something that can be done now and should be done now. Now let's go on verse 6, then It says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. That's when God says, look, though in the way of the wicked, the unrighteous thoughts, they keep a person away from God. So God says, get rid of those thoughts, get rid of them, because you cannot keep sin in your heart and come to God. You cannot love sin and love God. It's going to be one or the other. So God says, forsake it, leave it, abandon it. He says, forsake the way, forsake the thoughts that are far from God. Come to God. Why? Because he wants to. He's anxious to forgive. He'll have mercy upon us. He will abundantly pardon. He's anxious to forgive. He's anxious to save. And this is not the way that we would think. So therefore, verse 8 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, what ways is God talking about? And what thoughts is God talking about? It's what he just said. It's the thoughts of mercy. It's the thoughts of pardon. It's the thoughts of being anxious to forgive and to save. That's not our way. Our way is to get even. Our way is to get back. Our way is revenge. That's not God's way. God's way is he wants to forgive. 
God's way as he wants to save. God's way as he wants to see the wicked forsake his way. He wants to see the unrighteous man forsake his thought because he's anxious to forgive. He's anxious to save. He's anxious to tear up our our boarding pass that says destination hell and give us a new one that says destination heaven. He's made it all possible by the cross. That's the way that's not our way. Nobody, none of us, no man ever would have thought of a way of saving man that God should become a man, that God should suffer on a cross for our sins, that God should shed his blood for our sins. But those are the ways of God that are higher than our ways. And he says in the analogy is to look at how high the heaven is upon the earth. And that's the analogy of how far, how high God's ways are than our ways, how far God's thoughts are than our thoughts. He says, my thoughts of being anxious to forgive, of being anxious to save are so much higher than your thoughts. When we recognize that, we only have one response, and that response is simply, to thy cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Thank you for joining us today. Now, are you like Noah and helping those around you to escape death and preserve life? Well, how about with God's lost Jewish people? Are you reaching out to them? Are you trying to help them to come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Maybe you have a Jewish friend or have a Jewish colleague or acquaintance or someone that needs to be reached with the gospel that's Jewish. We want to help you with a free Tom Cantor gospel Jewish gift to be able to be sent to them or to you to give directly to them. So you can contact us directly by phone and we can help you to do that. Call us today, one 800 247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. You can fulfill God's command to go to his lost nation of Jewish people first. And that's 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Thanks for listening.